Take your Bibles, if you would please, and turn with me to the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 2 is where I want to direct your attention this morning. We are slowly walking our way through this book. Remember that the easiest way to find 1 John is to go to the book of Revelation right at the end and turn left just one or two pages. 1 John chapter 2, I'm going to read from verses 12 through 14. If you're an especially astute observer, you might notice that the verse numbering is a little bit different in some of your translations. Uh, and uh, that's fine. I don't think it will matter today, uh, but it's just a little strange. Uh, and I'm going to start reading in verse 12, which is where everybody will start. Verse 12, 1 John 2:12. Listen to what John writes. I am writing you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. A couple of weeks ago, I wrote a letter to one of our uh, college students who's away at school, and it made me think about my own college uh, experience. And when I reminisce about college, I wince a little bit. And the reason I do is because there were moments, especially during my first year, uh, great uh, periods of sadness and loneliness. I'm sure I'm not unique in that. I'm not by nature a melancholy person. I was not in any sort of diagnosable way depressed. But there were times that I was definitely down. And I really I enjoyed my classes. I liked learning. I was making new friends. But I was still just sad. It occurred to me after I came back to campus after our first big break, Thanksgiving break, it occurred to me that part of my problems was, one of my problems was that I was making new friends, but I really missed my old friends. And not my peers that I had known for a long time, I mean my old friends, my friends who were old. So the terrible thing, the terrible thing about a college campus is that the vast majority of people, there's faculty and staff there, but the vast majority of people are between the ages of 18 and 22. And that really makes for bland living. One of the things I really miss about college is spending time with people who were older than I was and people who were younger than I was. Uh, It's God's intention, it is God's intention that his people, that the community of faith that gathers to worship on a Sunday morning be marked by the beauty of diversity. The emphasis of much of the New Testament is on racial diversity, but we talk here at our church too about chronological diversity. I haven't used this phrase in a long time, but by God's grace, uh, we are a multi-generational community. A healthy congregation is a multi-generational community. Some of you have been around Grace for long enough that you remember John and Betty Tyndale. Do you remember the Tyndales? The Tyndales moved to Lancaster County. They retired to Lancaster County a number of years ago from New Jersey. And as they got older, uh, advanced in years, their children uh, encouraged them, wanted them to move into uh, a community, wanted to move to Willow Valley, as a matter of fact. And Betty Tyndale, she was, I think, around 80 when she, used to, uh, when she would tell me this, she would say to me, I don't want to move to Willow Valley with all those old people. <laughs> 
There is something vibrant, there's something life-giving about a community of believers, a diverse community of believers. We come together with all of our experiences and all of our uh, uh, lives, and we build a family centered around our older brother, the Lord Jesus. There was, uh, uh, there's something vibrant about a, a community like that. And, and in a community like that, there is a greater chance in a multi-generational community, there's a greater chance that it is also a supernatural community. You don't need the Holy Spirit to get along with people who are just like you. You don't need the Holy Spirit to get along with people who are your age. You don't need the Holy Spirit to get along. Middle-aged businessmen and women don't need the Holy Spirit to get along with each other. Young mothers don't need the Holy Spirit to get along with each other. They have a lot in common. But the greater your diversity the greater that you need the Holy Spirit in order to form that union and that community. This seems, I think, to be what the Apostle John wanted to encourage too. And that, I think, is clear in the verses that I just read this morning that are open before us. Frankly, this is somewhat of a difficult passage of Scripture. There are parts of it that I don't understand, which is very frustrating. Um, I understand every word in these verses. None of them are very long. I understand all of the words, but when John puts them together, I have troubles. What I want to do for the the next few minutes, we have careful Bible readers in our church. And do you mind, I want to take a minute and I want to unfold, well, I'm going to unfold the text and I'm going to explain it and apply it. But first I want to talk to you about some of the difficulties, some of the challenges that are in this passage. I want to tell you the questions I have still about these verses with the hope that it will help you become better at asking questions of the Bible as you read it, as you have it open before you. So uh, if, 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 this is, if you just want a simple explanation of the text, that will come in a little bit. But for just a minute, here is uh, some of my questions. Here are some of my questions. Uh, here's the first one. I'm not sure what to do with the fact that John changes verb tenses in this passage, in these sentences. Did you notice that? You might not have noticed that. This is clearly a poem of some kind, and it's very repeated pattern. I am writing to you, and then he identifies group, and then he's because. It's a very pattern. Six sentences just like that. And he changes verb tenses halfway through in his verbs. So in verse 12, 13, and well, the first three sentences, it's present. I write to you, or I am writing to you. And then the next three sentences, it's actually in the the Greek aorist tense or the past tense. I wrote or I have written. Your translation might handle that differently, but does your translation indicate those changes? Now, why did he do that? I don't know. Some people have speculated about it. One of my favorite suggestions is that um, John wrote the first three sentences and then he got interrupted. The doorbell rang, the tea kettle went off, the baby needed was crying, I don't know. And uh, then when he came back and picked up his pen, he, he, he started writing the next three sentences and changed the verb tense. That's a very realistic explanation. But uh, there's nothing in the text that indicates that, so I don't know. I'm not sure. I, I know there's a reason. I know there's a reason. I haven't figured it out yet. Uh, here's my, uh, another problem that I have. Why is there so much repetition in this, this passage of Scripture? Do you notice in particular uh, when he's writing to fathers in the middle, the middle sentence of the, the two groups of three, it's, it's identical. Uh, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. He said that twice. Now, this is a poem. It's lyrical. Maybe he's, you know, this is a, a function of, of poetry. Most likely he's trying to emphasize that. 
but it's still, it's still strange. Here's a third challenge uh, that I have. What do we make of the different audiences that he is addressing in, these pas- in this passage? Six lines, three different words to describe the readers. There is dear or little children, there is fathers, and then young men. This is not intended to exclude uh, uh, women. Those nouns would be inclusive. So um, children, fathers and mothers, young men, and young women. But why these three different titles? Uh, there are uh, seven or eight different suggestions. I won't tell you all of them. Some, some scholars think that he's specifically writing to these different chronological groups in the church. That's a possibility. Some people think that he's speaking to different levels of spiritual maturity in the church. That's a good suggestion. I think, and I, I hope to show this to you in a minute, that, that John uses these words to commend particular qualities that we most naturally associate with these groups. I want to explain that more, but do you remember what Muhammad Ali used to say about his boxing style? He floats like a butterfly and stings like a bee. And he said that to describe in his boxing style there are, is, are there are qualities of butterfly-ness that he seeks to embody. And, and I think John is writing this, there are qualities of children that I want you all to exhibit and qualities of, of seniors that I want you all to exhibit and qualities of young men and young women that I want you all to exhibit. I think that's what he's doing. So there's a, those are three parts of this passage that are troublesome to me. But to paraphrase Mark Twain, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that give us trouble. It's the parts of the Bible that we do understand that give us trouble. So let's talk about what we do understand from this passage. Think with me for a minute about how these verses function in this book. Why are these verses here? What's John, John trying to accomplish with them? I think John wrote these because he wants to encourage his readers. He wants to assure them of the real fruit of their real faith in God that he sees in them. Uh, you'll remember up to this point in time as we've been going through John, John has been, First John, John has been taking on some of the claims uh, of the people who have left the church. There were people in the church who had claimed to be followers of Jesus and now they have left the church and they have said, we understand God in a whole new way and you need to come with us outside the church and, and, and we'll teach you the true mysteries of what it means to follow God. And John has been spending time saying, huh, Their Christianity is not real Christianity. He does this a lot. So uh, in verse 6 of chapter 1, we we talked about this. He he takes on their claims. Verse 6, chapter 1, it says, If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. He says something similar in verse 8. If we claim to be without sin. Verse 10, if we claim. And then in chapter 2, verse 4, whoever says. There's a lot of these false teachers who are making a lot of claims and John is here to push them down. They don't, he says, have a real relationship with God. They're they're deceived. It's possible. It's possible to think that you have a relationship with God and to be deceived. So John is knocking and pushing these false teachings down. In the midst of it, he wants to say to them, his readers, he wants to write to them and tell them about the real fruit that he sees in their lives. That that they are genuinely followers of Jesus. And he wants to talk about this real fruit. 
Uh, there are people in the world who are deceived about their spiritual condition, but not you. And I want you to tell you, I want to tell you, John says, what I see in you. Now, I should pause just for a moment before we proceed and, and, and just point out to you that John is doing here for his readers what he has commanded them to do. In verses 7 through 11, he commanded them to love one another, and then he picks up his pen in verse 12, and he does love them by encouraging them. He's, he loves them by telling them what, he, what good things he sees in their lives. This is what encouragement is, or Perhaps better, love expresses itself in encouragement. Encouragement is a, is a form of love. This week in our staff meeting, we spent some time talking about encouraging people in the congregation. Do you know encouraging people in our church? There are encouraging people in our church. And, and when they are encouraging others, they are expressing love because encouragement is a form of love. Now, what I want you to see from John's encouragement in this text are three signs of a healthy congregation. Three things that he saw in them that in particular point out their health and the joy that he has in them. Now, there are more in the Bible than just these three signs of a healthy congregation, but here's what's here in this text. It's possible to be really sick when you think you're healthy, but here are signs of a healthy congregation. It's true of John's church that he's writing to. I think these things are true of our church as well. Let's read these this morning with the hope that God would make them more true in our church. Right? So here they are. Here's sign number one. A healthy congregation is filled with people who are marked by a childlike wonder at forgiveness. A childlike wonder at forgiveness. Verse 13 says, verse 12 says, I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. Dear children. It's interesting. Jesus commended his to his people, uh, a form of childlikeness. Jesus was not talking about childishness, but childlikeness, and there's a difference. And here, John is commending this childlike wonder at the good news of forgiveness that is rich and free. It's a wonder that takes God at his word. It's a wonder that's not poisoned by doubt or cynicism or fear. It's a wonder that's at the center, over what's at the center of our faith, forgiveness. Some of you have been to Longwood Gardens. I like to go to Longwood Gardens. It's beautiful to see the flowers and plants and trees. It's beautiful at Longwood Gardens. But um, I can't help it. Part of me, when I walk around Longwood Gardens, I look at all the, the plantings and everything, and I think to myself, this is so much work. <laughs> you know, there's 5,000 tulips in this field, and I just feel really bad for the poor guy who had to plant all those bulbs. If you go to Longwood Gardens and all you can think about is how much work it is, you're doing it wrong, right? You're not thinking properly about Longwood. Longwood Gardens is a place for wonder. It's not a place for you to think about all the toil. Some of you are thinking about forgiveness wrong because it's been poisoned by your cynicism or your doubt or your fear. This week I listened to an interview with a counselor. Her name was Barbara Duguid, which is her real last name, which is awesome. And uh, she's a counselor. She's an author. One of her areas of expertise is on the letters of John Newton, which I understand are very well worth reading. 
So uh, she, the interviewer asked her about what happens when somebody comes, how she responds as a counselor. If somebody comes into her office, someone who is just feeling weighed down, guilty of some terribly grievous sin. And Duguid said that her first goal with those men and women is to, mostly women, is, is to strengthen, she says, their conscience. Not, she says, that I am trying to diminish what they have done. I'm not trying to talk them out of, 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 of feeling bad about what they've done or, or, or dismissing it, but I try to show them that forgiveness is real. It's real. She said it usually takes people about six months for that to sink into their minds and hearts. Do you, remember, uh, you recognize the name Becky Pipert? Becky Pipert wrote a book several years ago called Out of the Salt Shaker. It's about sharing your faith. Uh, she's written a lot of books that I think are worth reading. She said that when she talks to people about what it means to follow Jesus, when, uh, to become a Christian, when she eventually gets around to the subject of sin, which most people don't understand, most people have a character of it, people, she says, tend to fall into one of two categories. On the one hand, she meets people who are convinced that they are so good that they don't need anybody to forgive them. Or she meets people who are so bad, who feel that they're so bad that it's not possible for them to be forgiven. Where are all the people in the middle? The people who know that what the Bible says about them is true, our condition before God, and that when God speaks about forgiveness, he really means it, and it is a wonder. Where are those people? John wrote, your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. On account of his name. That immediately pushes us back to chapter 1, verse 7. Look at chapter 1, verse 7 again. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. His name, his blood. Verse 9 of that same uh, chapter 1. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. His name, his blood, his faithfulness, his justice, it's his. Forgiveness is his work. His blood reminds us, when he mentions his blood, it reminds us of his death. The Bible tells us that our natural condition before God is that we are guilty before him. We are oriented away from him. And this rebellious, rebellious orientation manifests itself in all kinds of ways. In our actions, our attitudes, our values, our thinking, what we love. And on the cross, the Lord Jesus took our sin upon himself He bore the penalty that we owed, and he died for us. He was treated like a sinner so that we might be welcomed like sons. That's why I think uh, in the other place that John mentions children, he talks to them, uh, he says, I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. Formerly you were alienated from God. Now we're adopted sons and daughters through the Lord Jesus. And notice that the foundation of forgiveness here is his name. You have been forgiven on behalf, on account of his name, because of him. We just read the verse. Verse 9 says that if we confess our sins, um, this confession is vitally important. But your forgiveness does not rest on your ability to confess your sins. Your forgiveness does not rest on the promises that you make about your future behavior. It doesn't rest on how sorry you feel in a given moment for your sins. It rests on the Lord Jesus, on account of his name and what he has accomplished. 
Some of you, I, I, I know some of you, I know some of you quite well. Some of you are pretty good sinners. You've really made a good go at it. I mean, you've, you've really cultivated some anger in your life and you've really done some destructive work. You're, you're, you're not bad at being a sinner. But you are not a sinner at all in comparison to what kind of Savior Jesus is. He is a much better Savior than you are a sinner. You're, you're not a bad sinner. You're not bad at it. But you're not even in the class of Jesus when it comes to him being a savior. <laughs> the forgiveness is on account of his, his name. His name. You're not forgiven because of your ability to hold on to Christ, but because of Jesus' ability to hold on to you. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. Do you believe that? Have you embraced this as your own? Are, are you filled with a sense of wonder, of forgiveness through Jesus that is rich and full and free? Brothers and sisters, this is a reminder for you this morning. This is a wonderful privilege for me to tell you there is forgiveness in the Lord Jesus for all of your sins, your past sins, your present sins, your future sins, the sins you haven't even committed. It, it's, it's a wonder. Healthy congregations sing about this. Healthy congregations read about this. They celebrate this. They remind one another of this. There are people in the room who need to hear you sing when you sing, He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. They need to hear you say this. By the way, healthy families sing about this and talk about this too. Forgiveness. A childlike wonder at forgiveness. Now here's another sign of a healthy congregation this morning, we'll move on to the second one. Number two, healthy congregations need a, uh, people with a maturing friendship with the Lord Jesus. A maturing friendship with the Lord Jesus. This is so important that John said it twice, right? <laughs> I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. Now, who's he writing about? Who's the one who is from the beginning? Is it God the Father or is it God the Son? In context of the book of 1 John, it's got to be the Son, I think. He's the one. Uh, John wrote this book to remind people of the eternality of the God-man, Jesus Christ. And, and, and the one who's from the beginning is Jesus, not the Father. He's talked about the Father in the line right above it. But this is about Jesus. You have known Jesus, the one who's from the beginning. Uh, now, on the one hand, to know Jesus, to make that claim, is to be a Christian. He said that up in chapter 2, verse 4, whoever says, I know him. So all followers of Jesus know him. But when he uses the word fathers, and when he couches it in that language, seniors, he's talking about a maturing knowing of Jesus, an intimacy that has developed with him over time through long years of experience. It occurred to me this week while I was thinking about this that over the years I have heard a number of our senior saints talk about how happy they are to see the church filled with children. Happens to me probably at least once or twice, uh, once a month or once every two months. Some dear senior saint in the church will say, oh, I love to see these kids around here. I love to see these young parents around here. It's just wonderful. They'll say that. Sometime in the next uh, uh, couple of months, we're going to dedicate seven babies. 
You know who will be the happiest about that? The old people. Not so much the nursery workers, but the old people. They'll love it. They think it's great. What's rare for me, uh, I'm not sure I've actually ever heard it, is for young adults to tell me how thankful they are that the church has plenty of older people. I hear it one way, but I'm not sure I've ever heard it the other way. Now, maybe that's because uh, that's not how young adults speak, maybe. Or maybe they just automatically expect there to be senior citizens at church, maybe. Uh, But the presence of gray hair and wrinkles is something you should want in a church. Uh, For yourself, you should want it for your children. Over the last few uh, couple of weeks when I, I wasn't teaching Sunday school, I visited some of the classes of our younger students. Um, we have excellent Sunday school teachers in our church. It's wonderful. Most of them, though, are young. They're very skilled, but they're young. You should be happy if you ever drop your children off at a Sunday school class uh, and the teacher has gray hair and wrinkles. Why? Because you are entrusting your son or daughter into someone who has followed Jesus for decades. And that dear saint will be able to tell your children, your son or your daughter, about how Jesus has carried them through so much. They'll be able to talk about how Jesus has been with them in times of joy and sorrow and sickness and grief and poverty and riches and loneliness and despair and euphoria. Jesus was there. He was there. Through my whole life, Jesus was there. I have people like this in my life. Do you have people like this in your life? I remember... One of the Sunday school teachers in my church when I was growing up, she, she died, I'm pretty sure, as my remember, memory, before I was 10. But her name was Irma Dengler. And Irma Dengler uh, was uh, from Perry, New York. Um, she taught the four- and five-year-old Sunday school class in that small church for about 50 years. So now when you're little... You know, you're a little child. Anybody over 25 is like ancient. So when I would look at Irma Dengler, I'm pretty sure when she was teaching me in Sunday school, she was about 127. I'm pretty sure that's how old she was. She she and her husband Corning lived a block and a half from the church. She walked to church most Sundays, which is good because you don't want 127-year-olds driving. And uh, she, she followed Jesus for decades, and she loved children for Jesus' sake. For the last three years, my family and I have been going to a family camp, a weekend retreat in western New York at the camp where Kathy and I met. And uh, the director of the camp, he's 90 years old, and he still preaches. 45 minutes, he'll stand and preach. And uh, uh, when I listen to Mr. West speak, I think to myself, I want to love Jesus like that man loves Jesus. Because he's walked with him for 70 years We need people like that in our church. Every congregation does. We have people like that, and I'm glad. Aren't aren't you glad? Now, Now, keep in mind, keep in mind, in our culture, it's not cool to be old. Um, No one wants to join the old club. Okay, it's not, it's not, no one is naturally thrilled about gray hair and wrinkles. All right? Don't tell them I said this. Okay? Don't tell them I said this, but I'm talking about baby boomers right now. They don't like to be told that they're old, but that's who I'm talking about right now. Don't tell them that I said this. They're in the sweet spot of what John is writing about right here. And if you're one of those dear saints, our church needs you to talk about what it means to follow Jesus for decades. That's what we need. 
Now, there's one more sign of a healthy congregation. Let's finish by talking about this one. A healthy congregation has people with a vigorous ability to defend the church. A vigorous ability to defend the church. He says, at verse 13, I am writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. And at the end of verse 14, he, he elaborates this a little bit. I write to you young men and women because you are strong. And the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Here's the source of your strength. Here's the reason that you've been able to overcome the evil one. The word of God, it lives in you. It's interesting he writes this to young men, because young men have desires that need to be overcome, and they have the strength to do so, the God-infused strength to do so. Now, notice, remember, the Bible calls all of us to have this sort of Bible-saturated vitality. That's true. But here, Paul, uh, John mentions this as a particular mark of young adults. You have the strength to absorb the word and to live it out and to apply it. He mentions overcoming the evil one. This is the first mention in this book of our adversary, the devil. He's the one who opposes the church. This is the first mention of him in this book, but it's not the last. We'll, we'll, we'll visit him again. Now, when John says you have overcome the evil one, I think he's primarily thinking of two things. I, I think, he, on the one hand, he's talking about internal desires. We're going to talk about this next week when we get to chapter 2, verse 15. But he, he writes about desires here, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And, and, and John says, you've overcome these things by the word of God and the strength that it provides. You've overcome those things internal desires. But I think he's also talking about external threats to the church. Flip over with me to chapter 4, verse 1, shall we? 1 John 4, 1. Look what it says. 1 John 4, 1 says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge that Jesus is, is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. There he is, evil one. Which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have, here's the same word, overcome them. Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. I write to you, young men, because you're strong and you have overcome the evil one. Overcoming means pushing back, not just against internal desires, but also resisting the external threats to the church. John is writing to those who, in the church who know the word of God and use the strength that it provides to fight their own desires and to protect the church from outside influences that would destroy her. Do you notice the confidence that John has in the young men and women in this congregation? You should be encouraged by that because some of you are so terribly discouraged. You're discouraged by the lack of growth that you see in your own life. But John is writing as if this is a real possibility, that there's real people who have experienced this, real people who have infused the word of God and been strengthened by it and have actually overcome John not only, we should be encouraged by this, but John not only, he puts a lot of confidence in these young men and young women to protect the church, the congregation. In two weeks, we're going to have another congregational meeting. Scott mentioned that. We're going to vote on a budget. That's pretty mundane. 
but we're also going to welcome six or seven new members into the church. And your vote on that is one of the ways that you protect the congregation. Who are these people that want to come and join us? What are they going to do to our church? The elders have interviewed them. We have confidence in them. But when you vote yes or you vote no, you'll be adding, this is, is your participation in this process of protecting the church, of overseeing the church. Use, it, use the strength that you have to protect the church. I'm not sure if they still print them regularly in the newspaper. Maybe they do. Uh, but I used to look at the newspaper on Sunday and I would take note of the generational pictures. Do they still put those? She's in the wedding page and birth. They'll put um, pictures of all these genera- five generations in one photo, right? Great-grandma, great-great-grandma, great-grandma, grandma, mother, baby, or father, baby, some, some combination, five generations. It's wonderful pictures. I'd love to see those pictures. Um, there's a connection in those pictures to the past, long life that some of those great-grandparents have lived. And there's a connection in there to the future in those pictures. Look at those babies. It's wonderful. It's a sign of health in that family. It's a sign of health in a church. It's a sign of God at work in a church. It's what John saw. And for those of us who read this, it's for us to see and for us to celebrate. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we have reasons to give you thanks for this passage of scripture that reminds us of the fruit of real faith in God. Lord, I am thankful to you and and we together rejoice at the wonder of the forgiveness that we have in the Lord Jesus as we turn to him and trust in him, find life in his name. Lord, you are well aware of how Doubt and cynicism and fear can poison the wonder. And I pray that you would renew it again in us as a church today, this childlike wonder. I am thankful to you, Father, for those who have walked with the Lord Jesus for a long time in our church. I'm thankful to you that you have carried them through deep valleys and up, up and over high mountains. Lord, I pray that you would increase their influence as they speak to us about the wonder of following the Lord Jesus. Lord, I'm grateful to you for the young men and women who are part of our church. I'm grateful to you for the strength that you have given them. They are strong in how they work hard at their jobs and how they raise their children. They're doing exhausting work. And yet I pray that by the word of God you would continue to strengthen them for the sake of our congregation and the, and, and, and the evil one who opposes us. Oh Lord, fill us with joy as we think about how this church is reflected in our congregation and magnify it. Lord, um, spread its message uh, in all of our minds and our hearts. We pray this together in the name of the Lord Jesus saying, Amen.